passage of scripture this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Um, uh, someone's asked me, they said, if, if the text that we read from the Bible is shorter, does that mean that the sermon is shorter? And I said, no. But it's just as good. Our word this morning is from Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. These are the words that God spoke through the prophet. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is the word of God. I want to ask you if you'll have a seat when please uh, take a moment and turn your Bibles if you would. Uh, open it to Isaiah. It's on the Pew Bible, the Red Pew Bible. It's page 714 if you don't have your own Bible with you. Um, as a pastor, one of the things I'm concerned about is that we quote the scriptures many times and we just take that to mean, okay, well, that's a quote and, and there it is. And we go on about business thinking that we understand it. And so this, this particular passage we, wrote, we read this morning speaks about a child that would come who would install peace in the world. And I don't know about you, but I haven't looked around and I haven't seen peace in the world. Have you? Uh, when I think of what's happened even in recent times with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, when I look on the TV and find out the election results and find out how divided we are as a country, when I look at, when I look at our country, our state and we look at the struggles we're having with sex trafficking in Charlotte and the overwhelming influx of illegals in our country that are even coming to our, our own uh, borders of our, of our state itself. Uh, when I think about uh, the fact that we are a, a nation that has been heavily in debt now for some time and we continue to spend more and more and so I, I could go through a list of things that seem to be nothing like peace whatsoever. In fact, it's caused more and more problems and consternation in people's minds and hearts uh, when we see things that we once would never imagine being promulgated by our, our government are now being upheld. For those of you who aren't aware, the, the government has indeed, our Congress and Senate has passed what is called the Respect of Marriage Act, which basically is saying that marriage is between anyone who wants to get married, regardless of gender. It's codified in our law if it's signed by the president. But the most amazing thing is that when you think about this, this is not a result of our elections of leaders. It, it's a result of our country as a culture. And you ask yourselves, has it ever been as bad as it is in our country before? And the answer is yes, it has been. And God brought renewal. Grace, gracefully, mercifully. God brought what was called Great Awakenings. One particular Great Awakening is recorded as happening in the conversion from people from their sins to God through Jesus Christ was so powerful that there was a coal shortage in the United States. Did you, could you imagine? Do you know why? In those days, coal was mined with mules from the mines. And as the Laborers came to know Christ. They began to repent of their language. 
and they began to forsake cursing and using God's name in vain. And the problem was the mules didn't understand the orders anymore because of the language being changed. It's true. See, that's the thing that I'm really praying for is that as a culture, you and I would begin to see a dramatic change. Well, how does that happen? I don't know. I don't know, but it's a mystery that God does when the gospel is presented to people. Now, that should be something you should think about. The peace we're talking about today is tied directly to your ability to speak into the darkness of your culture the truth of the gospel and why Christ has come. And more importantly, as to whether it is transforming your life so that you desire God more than you did the day before. Isn't that powerful? It's not original to me, but uh, original sin, as we understand it, that was handed to us from our parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden when they disobeyed God. It's called original sin, meaning this, this problem, sin problem, has entered the culture, not with our birth, it came before us. We call it original sin. And G.K. Chesterton, who was an apologist in the in, and born in the late 1800s and died in the early 1900s, he was, uh, he was a Brit. And he was known for his tremendous writings. And he was also not only a writer, he was an apologist for the Christian faith, even in that day, when the battles of evolution began to permeate the church. And when that battle was going on, the question is, well, if, if, we, do, we, if we evolved from something and, we, and the stories of the Bible aren't true, if Darwin was correct, then the question is, where does sin come from? How did it enter into the human race? And yet, G.K. Chesterton wrote, uh, one of the quotes he's been famously given is that original sin is the only doctrine that has, empirically, that has been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. Isn't that true? Well, it's not a surprise then as we turn in Isaiah this morning, and, and I invite you to turn on page 714. Uh, for those of you who are wondering where we're going with this, well, the importance of this is this. It, it is a story of a prophet who in his own day had to preach to a people who were the people of God, but they had forsaken the covenant God made with them. You remember the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. They were brought into a land that they did not have to work for. God provided for them. And God said, if you will follow me, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants and he fulfilled that covenant, part of it, by bringing them into the promised land. But over the generations that they were there, by the time Isaiah was born, the last king alive descended from David, who was going to be the line through which the Messiah would come. David was promised that his, his forebearer would be the one Jesus, Jesus would be tied to. He, Jesus would be descended from David. But Ahaz was now in a pickle. He was now king, a descendant of David, 
I guess he looked himself up Ancestry.com. I'm not sure. But he figured out that if he died and he had no children to live, the line of David would be snuffed out and we found out last week the crisis would be that God's promise would be forever obliterated. That's the danger. If you look at chapters 1 through 2, you'll find that Isaiah was called to preach to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz was the king in the southern kingdom, which was made up of two former tribes of Israel, of the 12 tribes. And the most amazing thing is that this division that had happened, happened after Solomon's death. There was David, King David, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam and Jeroboam, who were not brothers, by the way. But they had the same similar names, were, were basically appointed kings. Rehoboam in the south, a, a descendant of David, Jeroboam, a, a, a general who then led the ten northern tribes into forming a whole different country, much like what happened in the Civil War of the United States. And during that time of division, these kings rose and they, they led the people, and, and many of them led into doing what God had forbidden, and many of them tried to lead people into doing what God had commanded. But it's in the end of those days of this divided kingdom that Isaiah was called to bring the message of judgment and hope to Jerusalem. It was a judgment in that God saw their rebellion, he saw their idolatry, he saw the injustice of the land, he saw how they lived out their lives, and it wasn't that they could be named followers of God. They had somehow turned completely away in such ways that, as we covered last week, the sins of the people were so gross, so vile, that God had made up his mind that he was going to bring judgment. He was going to bring like a purifying fire. A fire that would consume the people in such ways that they would pay for their sins. In other words, God's wrath would visit their lives. And because of their sins, God's great love for them was that he would intervene. You see, that's what love does. It intervenes when things are going wrong. And that's what God did. He loved his people so much, instead of allowing them to come to the consequences or the end of their sin, he said, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And bringing that judgment, he said, amazingly in the first two chapters, his prophecy was that as God would bring this purifying fire of judgment upon his people, that God would also, from the ashes of all that, bring forth a new people who would have a new heart for him, who would who would come and establish uh, their lives in Jerusalem again, and they would love the Lord. And because of their love for the Lord, all the nations of the world would be reunited to God. <laughs> Nobody believed that. I mean, that's, that's called, a, that's called an, a saga of a story, that, that the punishment that God would dish out would actually bring redemption for not just the Jews, but the entire world. Well, how is this going to happen? Well, the, the story opens, and, and as you get into it, the, the power of it is, and in chapter 5, as we covered last week, God tells the story. He sings a song through Isaiah about how he had planted this vineyard called Israel, and he planted it with the choicest of vines, the greatest of properties. He had blessed them and, and tilled them and, and, and preserved them in such ways that he expected them to produce wonderful fruit. 
but they produce sour grapes. And so because of that, Isaiah, as he finishes this song, he, he sings it, so to speak, to the people of what God's great love for them was and how they had turned away from it. And to make sure it wasn't an us versus them kind of thinking, in chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord. And when he sees the Lord, he doesn't point his finger at all the, everyone else and say, look at all those sinners over there. He looks at himself and says, oh, worries me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. You see, the only hope that humanity has, the only hope that America has, is that we would glimpse the holiness of God to understand how sinful we truly are. Because that will be the motivation that would lead us to holiness. Why is this background so important? Well, imagine, I have a friend who has a back problem and, and uh, he has always kind of been more liberal with his meals than he should be. And, and, and uh, he's not a big guy, he's not a fat guy, but he just realized, you know, he's having back problems. So he went to the doctor and the doctor just sat down with him and looked at him eye to eye and said, if you don't lose, I don't know what it was, 50 pounds, 80 pounds, 100 pounds, if you don't lose this weight now, you're going to be in a wheelchair in two years. We saw him this past week. He is skinny. I thought, what has happened? He was given an ultimatum. You see, that's what the holiness of God does. Regardless of how you and I may feel when we present the gospel to our world, the holiness of God causes one of two reactions. Either people reject it and can become angry and they say, get away from me, or they say, tell me more about Jesus. Well, Isaiah was told, you're going to go, Isaiah, and you're going to preach my word. And to prepare Isaiah for that, God had an angel take a coal from the holy presence of God and touch his lips. And he said, you are now cleansed. And then he said, go and preach this message. But Isaiah you're going to preach it, but the people who hear it won't change. But the reason I want you to preach it is because I want people to know what I am going to do. You see, what God said was Israel was a beautiful tree in the forest. And because of this tree that had grown so gloriously large and opulent in its beauty, turned away from the living God, God was going to cut it down. And if I'd been there, I would have wanted to save the wood to build something as a woodworker. But God said, I'm going to cut it down and it's going to wilt away. And the fire of what's coming is going to burn it up. In fact, the root that is left is going to be singed by fire. Does that sound hopeful to you? doesn't to me but then God says from that root will be a holy seed a holy seed if you've heard the root of Jesse 
That's what it is. That's what we sing about. When we sing about New Jerusalem, what are we singing about? We're singing about Isaiah's prophecy where he saw that one day God would bring forth a people who would so love him instead of deny him or turn from him that, that it would affect the entire world through this seed that would be coming from the root of Jesse. Well, amazingly, as, God, as Isaiah went out to preach this message, and you find this in chapter 7, as we found out last week, Ahaz was that king who was now trying to preserve his line and doing all the things he could to make sure that David's line continued, but nothing was helping because now two opposing countries were going to come and conquer him and get rid of him. One was Israel in the north and another was Aram or Syria to the east. And he was so worried that these two countries were going to usurp his kingdom that he just, he didn't know what to do. And Isaiah comes to him and says, just ask God to give you a sign and, and he'll give you a sign that he's going to take care of it. And Ahaz looked at Isaiah and said, I'm just too holy to do that. I'm not going to test God. And Isaiah said, fine, then God will give you a sign. A child will be born and his name will be Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. Okay, there's the first quote that Matthew gives in, a, in his first chapter of the gospel. But this child was born in Ahaz's day as a sign that God was with Ahaz. You see, God told Ahaz that before the child was old enough to know good and evil, the two kingdoms that threatened him would be gone. there was still coming a judgment. You see, sin must be judged. When I think of this, I think about our nation. Do we really believe that God does not have the right to judge us as a nation? To put us through a purifying fire? To expose to us our sins as a nation? He did that with nations that didn't believe in him. Do you know the name Jonah and the city of Nineveh? Jonah was sent there to preach, repent, believe in God, turn from your sins. He didn't want to go. Jonah would have rather allowed those people to die in their sins. <laughs> Not what you call a great prophet, right? But yet God gave him the first submarine ride. He's made a, a whale to swallow him and said, you're going to do my will. And then he basically had Jonah throw up, thrown up on the sand of the shore right outside of Nineveh so that basically when the prophet walked into Nineveh, he looked probably bleached from the acids of the whale. And if you had saw, seen this man come out of a whale's stomach, you would have repented too. Well, the amazing thing about this is that God, God is such a loving God. His wrath is meant to redeem. But if people will not turn, they receive what they deserve, the punishment of God. Well, in the midst of that, God reveals Something of a dual prophecy, and that brings us to our verse this morning, chapter 9. 
that there is going to come a child who will have the descendants, descendancy or the ancestry of David, but he will be called the Prince of Peace, the Almighty Father. his kingdom there will be no end well how will this happen how will it come about you see for the Jews when they heard this they were expecting a physical king to come and they were expecting someone who would come and bring that peace to them by the fact that they would have a military insurrection I'm having a little problem with the slide for some reason that the most amazing thing is that the peace that God was going to give, many of them thought would come through a military exercise. Uh, the, the struggles that are going on in the Ukraine and Russia right now, uh, Elon Musk, on the, as if his, his opinion is important, Elon Musk has said, well, if Russia would just sue for peace, then, then we could have the war and it would be over. Well, it would, it would certainly end the conflict, but it wouldn't bring peace to those people, would it? It wouldn't reconcile their differences. It wouldn't cause them to act as a united people instead of a people who are of two different countries. And so one of the things that you and I begin to wrestle with is then, then if, if Isaiah is right, then, then either, either this king who was supposed to come came and he didn't do the job he was supposed to do, or this particular prophecy in Isaiah 9 is about a future king that would come who would reveal God's will for his people and he would do so in such a tremendous way that he would usher in an age of peace that would have no end. Well, we found out as we look through some of the things that God has shown us in the scriptures that Jesus did not come to lead a military insurrection. In fact, when he entered the temple, when he came to the triumphal entry as it's recorded in the Gospels, he, he cried as he looked at his, his people in Israel and he said, Oh, that you would only know who I was and who, what would bring you peace. They were looking for a conqueror who would come. The problem that you and I have is we also are looking for a conqueror. We think in our minds that if we elect the right people to our government or if we have the right judges or if we have this or that, then we would have peace in our country. It won't happen. Why? Because the problem is our sin. That's the real problem behind every one of these problems. And it permeates every part of our culture, every part of our life, every part of our relationships. There is no place where sin does not permeate your thinking. And the question is, who or what can save us from this? For a, to us a child is born, a son is given. And it says in verse 6, and the government will be on his shoulders. What, 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 what will that mean? Well, his reign, how he reigns these people who will come to him will change their life. It will transform them from being what they were into being something that actually glorifies and honors God. And so as he, he begins to unravel this mystery for us, the, the people back in Isaiah's day must have just been scratching their heads saying, how can this be? Because Ahaz finally died and his son Hezekiah came to the throne 
And the only way they saved their throne, by the way, was they made a deal with the Assyrians who were this huge, powerful country that came to conquer them. And the only way they were spared was that they paid tribute. Well, when Hezekiah came, Ahaz's son, to the throne, the next son down, kind of like what's happening in England right now, right? By the way, who is, who is the king of England? Do you know? Imagine King Charles just coming to the throne and saying, okay, now as king, I am no longer going to follow anything that my mother did. We're going to now declare that the United States is an illegitimate country, and we're going to take it over. Can you imagine that? Well, that's exactly what Hezekiah did, and then even Pekah beyond him. So we're not going to keep these treaties with Assyria. And it was his choice, but it was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. Why? Because Assyria then was raised up, and they came and conquered and led off the people in Judah into slavery. The purifying fire was finally lit. So if the peace that you and I want in Christmas can't be done through military means. By the way, I, I, I try this in my own marriage. Do you? I tell my wife there are two rules in our marriage. The first rule is Robert is always right. <laughs> the second rule is when in doubt, refer to rule number one. Aren't you like that? There's your problem. There's my problem. I cannot force you and I cannot force myself to love God. I have to be changed. Something has to change me. Whether it's a doctor sitting in my face and telling me I got to lose weight or God has to light a fire that brings wrath and judgment upon me, something has to change me. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The second thing that's a possibility is that it was a, it was a result of diplomacy, treaties being totally uh, being, uh, bringing total well-being to all. When we think of peace, we think of that moment where, you know, it's kind of like how you felt after you, you ate turkey this past Thanksgiving, right? By the way, many of you don't, may not know this, but turkey actually has some ingredient that makes you sleepy after you eat it. I, I think it's the turkey's revenge is what it is. But, but it's amazing how when you eat that meal, you sit back and you just kind of go, you know that feeling? Wouldn't it be great if you could have that every day? Some of you are shaking your head. Maybe you ate too much turkey. But the point I'm getting to is that you come to a place where you just feel no need because you're completely satisfied. I don't know about you, but that's what we kind of do with God. It's what the people did with God in those days when God told them through Isaiah that this was going to happen. Many of them said, oh, surely God would never do that to us. 
God would never bring wrath upon our lives. God would never correct us and reprove us. God, God loves us, right? He's going to make sure that we're healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, that's the kind of message being preached in churches these days. That if you just trust that God's going to make, I mean, today may be bad, but tomorrow's going to be better. You hear that? Why is it going to be better? Because you're such a good person? Well, because God is such a loving God. Well, God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to be the person you were. He wants to transform you into someone who loves and desires him. And you don't. I don't. And so when, when they heard this message, they began to play fast and loose. They began to say, okay, God, what do you want? What do you, what, do you, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to do more sacrifices? We'll just get some more, more sheep and more bulls and we'll come to the temple and do more sacrifices. And God at one point tells the, the, the people, I am so tired of your sacrifices. I'm so tired of your religious posturing. I'm so retired of how you in your external worship seem to be worshiping me, but in your, in your heart you're thinking about who's going to be playing the football game or who's going to be doing this next week, or how much money you can make, or whether your deals are going to come through. You care nothing about a relationship with God. And the people said, well, we do on Sundays. And God said, I did not bring you out of Egypt so that you worship me just on Sunday. And so they began to barter and, and make deals and treaties. Well, let me tell you, that doesn't bring peace either. I, I, one of the things that really amazes me is how our culture is filled with people who practice the religion that is based on this idea of treaties with God. Well, let me tell you, there is no treaty you can make with God that will remove your stains of your sin. And there's no treaty you can make with God that transforms you into the person God intended you to begin or to be. But then the third thing that really astounds me is how the results of this peace come from the one and single way in which God is going to accomplish this. And here's the joy. Get ready. This is powerful. God is going to change his people by being with them. It is a peace that's going to result from a gift that God is in, the, in his gracious presence among them. And they would be dependent on his gracious presence to overcome their sins. You hear that? It's not that they would take the ten steps to overcome their sins. It's not that they would call up Dr. Phil and talk to him about how to overcome their sins. It's not that they would have advice given to them from some uh, counselor or some person who already has their own problems with their own sins. Have you ever noticed that, by the way? It's going to be from someone who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to know from the age of eight years old, I did not have a father who was present with me. And I still feel that scar today. And 
the most amazing thing is that is exactly where God touched me and changed me was when he began to say to me, Robert, I am your father. I am your supplier. I am the one who upholds you. I protect you and keep you. I am your God. And when I came to know God in that way, it began, it began to have See, that's what Christmas is about. People are going to fill their week this week going to Walmart, Target. By the way, don't, don't go to Target on Black Friday. Just, just a hint. Don't do it. But this week, people will fill their lives with everything that is material, looking for peace. And the only way you can get it is by drawing close to God. And thankfully, he has made a way for you to draw near to him. Amen? That's what this table is for. Elders, if you will come down. This table has been set for you so that you would begin to appropriate, that you would take advantage, that you would that you would actively reach out to the God who loves you, who desires to save you from your sins and have peace with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a, a person who has been baptized and you have uh, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you are an active member of a church, you are welcome to participate in this meal. We are, we, this is not a Presbyterian meal, it is a, it is a meal prepared for the people of God who love and have been transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. If you are, are not ready for that, then if you'll meet with Logan or myself and some elders, we'll be glad to talk with you about how you can make that decision to be a part of Christ's family. But this meal has been prepared for you who know the power of transformation in believing that God supplied for you what you needed in taking away the sins that once gripped you. Paul writes and he says in Corinthians that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that was used in Passover and he, after blessing it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my, of my blood that is shed for you. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? It means that when you partake of these elements, you are not feasting on bread and wine or grape juice. You are communing, being at one with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made it possible for you to have a peace that abides, not as the world gives, but as he gives.